they had a meeting with the Dowager Princess of Wales, the mother of future George III, and the, the princess asked little Harriet how she liked England. And she said, oh, I like it fine, but not as much as South Carolina. So even at the age of five, these, these children of hers are real South Carolinians. And so she understands that this is her son's inheritance is here. Um, she's going to stay here. She's going to manage their property for them. So by the time Charles gets home in 1769 and takes over his property, she's still managing Thomas's property. And Thomas doesn't get here until December of 1774. And when? I mean, the revolution starts almost a few months after he gets back. And so while he's away, while both of them are away, she manages all of their property for them. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution. Walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are happy to have Margaret Peggy Pickett giving us a rundown of her book, Eliza Lucas Pinckney. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Should I call you Peggy? I don't know. Well... I usually answer to Peggy okay. quicker than Margaret. So, <laughs> Very good. So uh, you are an independent researcher, author, and living history presenter. And you're, you're not even from South Carolina. So, but this is Eliza Lucas Pinckney is one of the heroines. I mean, we did another episode on Rebecca Mott. That is another big-time heroine of the revolution. Tell us a little bit about Eliza Lucas Pinckney and your genesis of the book. I discovered Eliza. I, I'm from Virginia. I have lived in Williamsburg, Virginia for 20 years. And so I worked for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation and the Colony Williamsburg Foundation. So when I moved here um, 13 years ago, I was very versed in Virginia colonial history. Right but I knew very little about South Carolina. Is there a big difference? Uh, there is, in some ways, um, society is the same as well, a planter society in Virginia, you know, it's the tobacco. Both Virginians and South Carolinians were very British in their outlook, in their laws, uh, in their, their social life, and so forth. And so that was, was very similar. And then you had the in Virginia, it's the Tidewater. Here, it's the Low Country. That's where the elites were living. Um, so it it is pretty much the same. But but there there were some differences. But I had heard of the Pinckneys. Okay. I mean, I did know that rice and indigo were the cash crops in South Carolina. Right. Like tobacco was in Virginia, and I'd heard of the Pinckneys, and I'd heard of Eliza Lucas Pinckney, but I didn't really know anything about her. So when I moved down here, um, I started doing some reading, uh, and I was at the Coastal Discovery Museum on Hilton Head Island doing one of their tours, and that they have a garden there with plants that are were important in South Carolina's history. So of course there was the indigo plant, and the docent was telling us how indigo um, was developed by this teenage girl named Eliza Lucas Pinckney, and that really perked up my interest, and I thought, interested in Eliza after after hearing that she developed indigo as a teenage girl. So I started doing some reading, and um, I thought she was really fascinating because she was born on the island of Antigua, 
Her father owned sugar plantations there. He was a person who believed in education, not just for his sons, but also for his daughters. So Eliza went to school for five years at a boarding school in, in London, um, came back to Antigua, and her father was in a little bit of financial trouble because um, there had been a drought in Antigua for six years and the sugar crop had failed. Um, and he needed to go to London. He wanted to uh, buy a commission to, to further his uh, military career because beside being, besides being a sugar planter, he was an officer in the uh, regiment that was stationed in Antigua. So he wanted to buy a commission as a major. He wanted to enroll his youngest son in school there. So after uh, Eliza had been home for several months, he left, and he left her in charge of his sugar plantations. On Antigua? On Antigua. Okay. How um, old was she then? She was probably 15, 16. Wow. Um, they had been very close. Uh, her education before she went off to school at the age of 10, had been overseen by her father because her mother was not in good health. Mrs. Lucas suffered from a severe anxiety disorder from what I can gather from the reading. And so she liked to experiment with plants and he always encouraged her to do that. In fact, he preferred that she work with plants instead of doing needlework, which was the fashionable employment for ladies at that time. I think he had confidence in her ability. He was only gone for a few months, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't a big thing. Was she the oldest? She was the oldest child. She okay. had two younger brothers and then a little sister who was probably 10 years younger than she was. Okay. So when George Lucas, her father, returned from, from uh, England, he decided to move the family to South Carolina. He owned a plantation on Wapu Creek. His father had bought that in like 1717, so um, it was a rice plantation. So he was going to come to South Carolina to make a new start and put his hopes in another crop other than sugar. So um, he, they arrived in the late summer of 1739. They had barely settled in. He owned two houses in Charleston, so they were living in Charleston. And then England declared war on Spain. And he was ordered back to Antigua to take up his military duties. By this time, he had acquired other property in South Carolina. He had a 600-acre plantation on Wapu Creek, 1,500-acre plantation on the Cumbie River, and 3,000 acres of rice-growing land along the Waccamaw River, plus the two houses in Charleston. So when he left, to go back to Antigua to take up his military duties. He couldn't leave his wife in charge because she was not able to right. do it. Right. So he left Eliza in charge. He left in November of 1739. She turned 17 at the end of December. So she was very young, but it was the duty of women in the 18th century to be helpful to their male relatives. So society looked upon this as perfectly normal. She's helping her father by managing this property. They felt sorry for her. Right. They tried to help her. I mean, everyone was willing to help her. She, and she asked for advice from planters 
who lived around that plantation on Wapu Creek because she decided that she and her mother and her little sister, who was four, would be happier if they lived on this plantation rather than staying at town. And she did that for her mother. Her mother did not like to be in crowds. So she was happier in a smaller society on the island. So one of the things George Lucas wanted to do was to diversify in his plantations. I mean, he had been really hurt when his sugar crop failed. And so he didn't ever again want to be in the position of relying on one crop for his income. So he's got rice, but he thinks there should be another cash crop. He just doesn't know what it's going to be. So when he got back to Antigua, he sent Eliza a number of seeds. They were different kinds of seeds. And he said, plant these, experiment with them. Tell me what's going to grow best here. And she planted cotton and indigo and lucerne, which is a form of alfalfa, ginger, and cassava. So she said that she had the greatest hopes for the indigo. So she concentrated on that. She worked on indigo for five years before it was successful. She had trouble um, with uh, just getting the plants to grow. Um, the frost took them one year. She had to learn a lot about South Carolina. Did she make a diary of, of this? How, how do you she, know all She wrote, she wrote um, letters to her father telling him what she was doing. They were, and in the 18th century, when you were writing letters and you were going to put them on a ship to send them someplace, you generally made uh, another copy. So you would keep a copy for yourself, and then you would make two copies to send on two different ships in case one of the ships sank. The letter would actually get there. So you would make a copy of the letter for yourself in what's called a letter book. And so we have Eliza's letter book. From what little I understand about indigo, it's very labor intensive. So she certainly didn't do this by herself. No, of course, it's the enslaved workers at Wapu. There are 20 enslaved workers there. I don't know how many of them are actually like field hands. But there is um, Quash, who is a mulatto. It's thought that he might have been the overseer. There does not appear to be to have been a white overseer okay. at Wapu Plantation. Huh? But he was a very skilled carpenter. He was the most valuable of all the enslaved workers there. And Eliza actually had him, when she married Charles Pinckney, she got Charles to free him okay. because of all the help that he had been to her. So I think he's sort of her right-hand man. So I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here. Okay, so where does he go? He um, has his own plantation. He has his own slaves. He becomes very on, successful. On Wapu Creek? Or? Not, no, uh, at, at another, I think, an area north of Charleston. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Okay. He is. He's, he's fascinating. And, and he helped Charles Pinckney build the mansion house that he built, in, um, and he did all of the, the woodwork inside. And he actually paid him as, as an enslaved worker. He gave him a salary. So Quash, was, did he come from Antigua? Antigua? No, he was here. He was on the Wapu plantation. It's thought that he was probably the offspring of a, a white overseer and one of the enslaved women because he's mulatto. Okay. <laughs> I know that, that it's, his story is very interesting. Isn't and it, there's a, a book called, um, if I can get all the colors right, Red, White, and Black Make Blue, talking about the, 
the land came from the Native Americans, the labor came from the enslaved Africans, and the white Europeans are the ones that, that planted it, that, that came up with the idea of planting it right. indigo. Right. And there's a lot of information in that book about uh, Quash. Yeah, he's a fascinating person. So she is 16, 17 years, years old, old. Mm -hmm. when she's, she's on this plantation by herself. She's moved her, her mother and her siblings. Her sister. To, her just, sister, yeah. mm -hmm. okay. And then she's just making a go of it. Yeah, she, um, the difficult part about indigo, well, at first she had problems getting the seeds. Her father was sending her seeds from the West Indies, but they weren't always good. So she wanted to just to rely on getting seeds from the plants that she had planted. But she had an indigo maker that her father sent. It was a man from Montserrat. Evidently, they made a lot of indigo in Montserrat. So he was supposed to be experienced. But for his contract was for three years. And in the three years he was working there, the indigo that he produced was not good. And the reason they knew this was I found this in a letter uh, from George Lucas to Charles Pinckney uh, later after Eliza and Charles were married, where he said, my wife tells me that Cromwell's indigo, that was the name of the indigo maker, that Cromwell's indigo turned linen a reddish blue. So they were, she and her mother were experimenting with when Cromwell made the dye. They would take the dye and they would dye linen with it to see how it did. So it was m more purplish in color than blue. So that she wasn't happy with him. He was a very nasty person. Uh, nobody ever got along with him. And he was overheard saying that he was sorry that he had come because he didn't want indigo from Carolina to compete with indigo from his native country. So there's some idea that he might have been deliberately sabotaging it. One of Eliza's neighbors, a French Huguenot who had knew something about indigo, he went and watched and he said he thought he was putting too much lime water into the mixture, which can affect the color. Mm -hmm. So he, his contract was over and then he was replaced by his brother Patrick who came in 1744. By that time, Eliza had married Charles Pinckney. Okay. So he made 17 pounds of dye that they thought was good. So Charles Pinckney sent six pounds of the dye to England as a trial to, the, to his businessman in England. They tried it. They said it was good. There was all this excitement in England about um, South Carolina being able to produce indigo. I think other planters in the area were planting indigo. I think they were kind of waiting to see if Eliza was successful in actually producing a good dye. And so then everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And in the parliament actually um, set a, an incentive for every pound of indigo that was shipped was made in the British colony, British North America, and exported directly to Great Britain. They would be paid six pence a pound extra. Okay. So indigo was... So in. the, but the first indigo that went over there, that they made this determination, was Eliza's. Eliza's. And she and Charles saved the rest of that crop. This was the crop that was grown at Wapu. They saved all of that crop for seed, and they gave it out to anyone in the colony would plant it. 
And Charles Pinckney himself grew indigo, but he didn't grow it to make dye. He grew it only for the seed. And the seed was very valuable because after a while, the French, at, at this point, England had been buying most of its indigo from French colonies in the West Indies. Now, England and France were always at war. I mean, the 18th century, they're from 1688 to 1815, there were a number of wars. France and England, were all, Great Britain, were always on the opposite side. So to be buying indigo, something that you needed from your enemy, spending two to 400,000 pounds a year mm-hmm. was not good. No. So um, they were, that's why they were so happy that, that South Carolina would be able to provide it. And, of course, it spread on down to Georgia. Um, and then when Florida became British after the French and Indian War, they were growing indigo there. But it also spread into the Midlands and into the backcountry because it could be grown anywhere, especially on the sea islands, uh, down around Hilton Head, um, Port Royal Sound, that area, because there's so much salt water that it was hard to grow rice. Mm. So it became a boon not only for the British, but also for South Carolina planters, and they started referring to it as blue gold because they were making so much money off of it. So in a previous episode, we talked about Eliza Lucas Pinckney having some tie-in to Rebecca Mott. There was a very close relationship between the Pinckney family, Eliza's family, and Rebecca's family. Eliza's only daughter was Harriet Pinckney. She married Daniel Ory in 1768, and she came to live at Hampton Plantation. Well, Hampton Plantation is three miles from Fairfield Plantation, where Rebecca Mott lived. So there's an 11-year difference between their ages, but they became close friends. Rebecca had already had several children by this time. Harriet hadn't been married very long before she discovered she was pregnant. Um, So she had somebody that she could um, kind of rely on. And Rebecca found a very intelligent, knowledgeable young woman. Harriet had helped her mother manage her father's estate after his death. So she knew a lot about plantation management. So the two became very, very close friends for the rest of their lives. And then, of course, Eliza's son, Thomas, married Rebecca's oldest daughter, Betsy. Betsy died in 1794, I believe, and then Tom married Betsy's younger sister, Frances, who, if you remember from one of the other episodes, had married John Middleton, fell in love at the siege of Fort Mott. He died after um, they had been married for a little over a year, leaving her a very young widow with a child. So she later married her brother-in-law. So these were certainly families from the upper crust Mm -hmm. of South Carolina at the time. And uh, it wasn't just some backwoodsmen somewhere. These were were people that had long ties, Mm -hmm. not only to South Carolina, but to the British Empire. So it raises a question, why would they rebel? It doesn't, on the surface, it doesn't seem logical, does it? No, it doesn't. They're so British, but that's the reason they rebel is because they are proud of the British heritage. They're proud of the Constitution. They're proud of the fact that Englishmen have certain rights, which people on the continent don't have. I mean, they're very proud of that. But when they are not treated with the respect that they think they deserve, 
then they decide it's time to just break our ties and be our own country. Was it an emotional decision? Where they just got all up in arms because they they were slighted in some way, or was it? I was think it something? was it was a continuous slight. Um, in South Carolina, most of the high offices, uh, of course, they all had to be approved by the king, but they were all not South Carolinians, not native South Carolinians. And in the early 1750s, I don't remember exactly when it happened, the Chief Justice of South Carolina died, and the governor appointed Charles Pinckney, Eliza's husband, as his replacement. There were several important cases that were coming up, so he needed a Chief Justice immediately. Charles Pinckney was one of the most brilliant lawyers in South Carolina. He'd gotten his education in England. The governor thought there would be no problem, but the king appointed someone else just because this person that he appointed had gotten himself into a bit of trouble. He had certified an election that was false. He had falsified some of the, the voting, and so the vote went to the king's man instead of the other man. And so he was in a lot of political trouble, and they just wanted to get him out of the country. So they sent him to South Carolina as the chief justice. Well, that was not only a considerable affront to Charles Pinckney, but it was an insult to all South Carolinians that, that, the, and the, that the king would do something like this. So that was just one example of things that were happening. Charles was so annoyed that he refused to be in South Carolina when this man arrived, so he took his family to England for five years. His main reason was that he was going to enroll his son, who was seven, that was Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, was going to enroll him in school. But they stayed there for five years before he came back, and unfortunately, a month after he came back, he got malaria and died, so wow. was, should have stayed in England. <laughs> Earlier, we talked about the differences between Virginia and South Carolina, and off recording, we talked about the, the merchant class and and how that was maybe a little bit different than Virginia. How did that play into the the viewpoint of British citizenry or, or the beginnings of the Revolutionary War and this idea that they are Americans first and then British subjects second? Um, in Virginia, it, it started in 1607, and then they discovered tobacco. And tobacco was the thing that was going to make people money. The cash crop. The cash crop. You needed 50 acres of land the least to grow tobacco. It wears out the soil. You have to keep changing your fields every year. So people spread out all over the, the rivers. There are just these beautiful rivers, the Potomac, the Rappahannock, the York, the James River. People started settling on the rivers because they used them as highways. So there really weren't any towns in the colony of Virginia of any size. Okay. In fact, for a long time, there were no towns at all, except for Jamestown, which was incredibly small. So large planters would have their own wharves, they would have warehouses, they would collect tobacco from all of their neighbors, merchant ships would come right to their docks, so they would send the tobacco to England, they'd bring back goods from England, they'd sell them to their neighbors. So they didn't really have a merchant, merchant banking class like they had in South Carolina. 
which I found so fascinating because it was so different from what I was used to. But South Carolina started a lot later than um, Virginia. And so it developed differently. And in Virginia, the officials were all native Virginians. Like the the attorney general was a Virginian. And um, in fact, they were going to appoint um, one of the Lees as governor, but um, he died before he could be named. So um, the members of the governor's council were the fathers and uncles and older brothers of the men who sat in the House of Burgesses. So it was like a family thing. So there was not tension between the council and the House of Burgesses as there was between the Commons House of Assembly and the council in South Carolina. I mean, there was real animosity between those two branches, so that was different. I know that uh, that Gadsden was the uh, in the Gadsden flag, and he was a big Revolutionary War. But what his political backing came from the merchant class, the artisans, because the planter class had all the ties to England mm-hmm. because of the the trade back and forth to England. So he really garnered a lot of that merchant class, and, and of course that that kind of jumped over into some of the planters. And, we talked earlier that in order for a revolution to happen, you really have to have these upper crust of society mm-hmm. really coming on board with that revolution, right? Right. Yeah, so I do find it interesting that the merchant class was, in many respects, still considered lower than the planter mm-hmm. class in the minds of, of the citizens. Yeah, the idea of, well, this is why most of them had um, owned land, because the gentry are landowners, you know, it's the landed gentry, you have to have property. So they would all have a country estate. It's like the Mots had Fairfield as their country estate. So you you would have to have land in the country. Right. You have to have something. And then plus, if you have land and you're growing rice on it or indigo, you're a merchant, you have a ship, you can put, you know, you can sell it. So, I mean, you have a, another product. You don't have to buy it from someone and then take it, ship right. it over. Right. It's yours. So, right. um, yeah, the merchant class is, is very much tied to, to England. There are several merchants that went to England, set themselves up as merchants in the Carolina trade. There were about five or six of them that were in London and dealt only with South Carolina. That was the only colony they dealt with. And they made, the merchants in Charleston made a lot of money, but you could make twice as much money if you set up in England, in the merchant trade, you know. I I read somewhere, and uh, I think it had something to do with the artisans in Charleston at the time, that one of the big rubs between the, the artisans and the planters was the fact that the planters were allowing the slaves to go out and create the same thing the artisans were having. So yeah. you had these slaves mm-hmm. that were in direct competition with, with these, art. the artisans. So they were against the slave trade because the slaves were under undercutting, undercutting. their business, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was a what a it's it's very complicated. It's not just cut and dry. And there were merchants who whose loyalty was always going to be to England. But they were probably not native South Carolinians. They were people who had come 
to South Carolina, set themselves up as merchants and were doing quite well, but they had no real emotional ties to the colony, whereas some of these merchants who had been here for a number of years, who had been here for a couple of generations, they felt the tie, they felt the, the tug of South Carolina. So how old was Eliza when the revolution came? Let's see, she was born in 1722. Okay, so she would have been in her 50s, 60s, right? 1776? Yes. 53 to yeah. mm -hmm. going into her 60s? She had been, uh, I think she was 36 when she was widowed, when okay. Charles died. Okay. And she took up... Um, managing his all of his property. They had been in England for five years. During that time, his brother William was looking after some of his property. I mean, he leased some of it out, but his brother was looking after his property, but his brother had a stroke. And so by the time they found out, and then there's a war going on, the, the um, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, they can't get a ship back. So his property was just sort of not, not being looked after for, you know, a year and a half, two years. So that's why when he came back, the first thing he did was to go out and look at his property. So he, he broke the cardinal rule is that you don't go into the country in the summer because you'll get country fever, malaria. Mm -hmm. So he went into the country and he got malaria and unfortunately died. So Eliza had two sons in school in London at this time, and she needed to, you know, pay for their tuition and all their upkeep and everything. Um, and so she had to go to work to um, manage his estates. And it took quite, she was devastated by his death, so it, it took a while for her to come out of that. Um, and then she had her daughter Harriet, and she decided that um, she couldn't, she was separated from her sons, and she didn't want to be separated from her daughter, so she decided to take on Harriet's education. And Harriet was well-educated. She spoke fluent French. Um, she was an incredible person on her own. She was looking after the property because this was her son's inheritance. Charles Pinckney was another one of these devoted South Carolinians. I mean, he loved South Carolina was not happy in England. Eliza would have been happy to stay in England with the rest of her life, but she knew that her husband was dedicated to South Carolina, and he instilled this in his sons because they were also very much attached to South Carolina. Even little Harriet, when they were in England, she was five years old, they had a meeting with the Dowager Princess of Wales, the mother of future George III, and the, the princess asked little Harriet how she liked England. And she said, oh, I like it fine, but not as much as South Carolina. So even at the age of five, these, these children of hers are real South Carolinians. And so she understands that this is her son's inheritance is here. Um, she's going to stay here. She's going to manage their property for them. So by the time Charles gets home in 1769 and takes over his property, she's still managing Thomas's property. And Thomas doesn't get here until December of 1774, and wham, I mean, the revolution starts almost 
a few months after he gets back. And so while he's away, while both of them are away, she manages all of their property for them. So she just sort of never stops. She just keeps on with it. And she's providing food for the army. She's done this pretty much all of her yeah. life. I mean, really, her, her dad leaves her in Antigua. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and then she brings it, he brings her up here, drops her off here. Yeah. And she's doing it all, mm -hmm. all through that. That's... What a heroine! What a yeah, what a... and then um, she, um, I think it's it's in seventy, not it's right before the siege of Charleston. Um, South Carolina issues war bonds, and Eliza buys like four thousand pounds worth of South Carolina bonds. So yeah, so her patriotism takes sort of a, a different turn than Rebecca's, who's willing to sacrifice her house for the, to further the, the cause. And Rebecca also is providing food and, and carts and, and whatever, you know, to the, to the partisan fighters. Um, Eliza's investing money. She's, you know, providing, uh, I mean, the army needed everything. They needed boats, they needed carts and wagons, they needed food. So all of these things, they're, they're, giving vouchers to uh, planters so that after the war they can be paid wow. uh, for, for their, but at the time they're not getting anything for sure. it. So this is a real patriotic act. Man, and, and it's, you don't know if they're going to win or lose, right? So it's, it's... That's right. And when she is completely um, uh, financially devastated by the war, um, she had a plantation. Her inheritance from her husband was a house in town and Belmont Plantation, which was his country seat. It's in, at the time was in the country. It's in Charleston Neck. So I mean, wouldn't consider that the country today. But he had a house there uh, and a plantation of 200 acres. He owned other plantations, but he didn't live at any of them, including a plantation um, in, near Hilton Head, Pinckney Island. Um, so he, um, so she had that plantation. She had a house in town. Belmont, the plantation, uh, was burned by the British before the siege of Charleston. It was when Prevo came up. Um, and then um, the house in town, she was able to get a renter for it. Her son-in-law, Daniel Ori offered her a place to stay, or Daniel Ori had taken British protection, so his property was safe. So she moved in with them, and she tried to rent out her house in town, but then the British decided to commandeer it to house Hessian soldiers. The renter decided he didn't want to share a house with Hessian soldiers, so he left, and the British never paid her for housing the Hessians in her house. They cut wood on her property at Belmont and never paid her for it. So she, she's got no money. I mean, she's completely wiped out. And she said, I've never been convicted of anything. And I had a fortune genteel enough to live any place in the world. And she said, and now I have nothing. So she was completely ruined. And Belmont was never rebuilt. She spent the rest of her life living with her um, daughter who was widowed shortly after the war was over.
what a fantastic story. What a tragic story in many respects. Mm -hmm. But uh, the book is Eliza Lucas Pinckney, Colonial Plantation Manager and Mother of American Patriots by Margaret F. Pickett. So where can they find this? Uh, this was published by McFarland Press, so it can be bought from them and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, several um, independent bookstores in Charleston carry both books. Well, these are two great books. Mm -hmm. The other book was Rebecca Bruton Mott uh, and this one, uh, Liza Lucas Pinckney. Two great heroines with great stories in South Carolina. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.